There's a crisis in our nation's capital. And no, I'm not talking about a political crisis. The District of Columbia is experiencing a crisis on multiple fronts. The violent crime is adding up, with the incident outside of Nats Park and the shooting death of six-year-old Nia Courtney being two of the most recent high-profile examples. The D.C. Police Union tweeted, Welcome to Washington, D.C., where violent crime permeates everything. Elected officials are enacting legislation that handcuffs law enforcement officers and a department that is down hundreds of officers. And no surprise, there's been real-life deadly consequences. Homicides are up 18%, carjackings up 25%, robberies up 40%, violent crime up 20%. The D.C. Metropolitan Police Department is at an all-time low in staffing, which is hampering the time it takes for officers to reach people who are calling for help. The time it takes to respond to priority one calls, which is the most serious incidents, has increased by almost 90 seconds. Now, if you're watching TV, 90 seconds might not seem like a long time. But if you're a victim in dire need of help, 90 seconds could make the difference between life and death. Across the country, leaders of the Fraternal Order Police are fighting back against legislative attacks being waged by agenda-driven politicians. Today, we're joined by one of them. Greg Pemberton, Chairman of the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department's Labor Committee. Greg represents more than 3,600 rank-and-file D.C. Metropolitan Police Department officers who go to work every day and serve and protect those living in our nation's capital. I am Patrick Gales, National President of Fraternal Order Police, and this is The Blue View. Well, Greg, thanks for joining us today with The Blue View. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me, Pat. My name is Greg Pemberton. I'm the uh, chairman of the Fraternal Order Police Metropolitan Police Department Labor Committee here in the District of Columbia. We represent uh, about 3,500 men and women in the Metropolitan Police Department. Uh, I've been on the police department about 17 years. I came on in 2005. I was lucky enough to uh, make detective pretty quickly. And for the past 14 years, I've been a detective working violent crimes uh, here in the District of Columbia. Yeah. Yeah, carjackings, uh, homicides, violent crime, all of these things are on a rise here in D.C. Just how dangerous is it to be a law enforcement officer in the District of Columbia today? Well, as alarming as those stats are, I don't think they paint the whole picture. Um, if you go into some of these neighborhoods that are normally plagued with violence and, and the ones that we spend most of our time in, you're trying to keep those neighborhoods and those communities safe. They, they really look like war zones nowadays. And and even though those those stats talk about citywide crime and you can see crime rising and even even affluent areas here in the district of columbia and upper northwest which is a very affluent area starting to see carjackings armed robberies shootings up in, in those areas like that uh, but, what's, but what's really alarming is is when you go to the areas that we call east of the river which uh typically some of the less affluent problem areas uh, it, it's really sad for some of the citizens that live over there because it's just become absolute mayhem so what do you what would you attribute to that surging crime well, there's, there's a lot of issues that are going on right now, but obviously law enforcement has been under attack for the past couple of years, and particularly in major cities, and Washington, D.C. is no exception. Uh, what we've seen here is uh, our city council in particular, um, and I should say D.C. is sort of a unique area. It's not a state. Um, it acts a little bit different than regular cities because there's no state legislature. There's no governor. Uh, so really our city council and our mayor sort of are the, are the end-all, be-all of, of the laws in the city. And so they've taken advantage of that and they've passed a number of reforms, really sweeping reforms that, that they call, you know, police reform and police accountability that really do none of that. All, all of these provisions really um, move in one direction, which is handcuffing police officers, preventing police officers from doing their jobs, preventing them from 
interdicting crime. Uh, and then also, even when we're able to go out and do our jobs, uh, you know, there, there's, there's, um, some of these bills have gone out and prevented uh, the prosecutors and judges from actually sentencing people to, to serious, um, penalties for these crimes. You know, across this country, and, and as you say, uh, you know, DC is not, uh, not immune to, to, by any stretch, uh, maybe even more complicated in some, some ways, but what, what we've seen is, is failed experiments by public officials that have, have been quick to demonize law enforcement and take away the very tools that we use in order to, to do our jobs. And, and we see crime going up in, in cities all across, across America. You know, law enforcement, I don't think anybody in law enforcement ever said we get it right 100% of the time. There's a, there's a human element involved in all of this. But, but at the same time, uh, law enforcement officers are committed to, to, to protecting our communities. And they do it in a way that, you know, time tested, uh, you know, uh, uh, policies and procedures that allow us to, to be able to take, uh, bad people out of the lives of the people that we, we protect. And when you, when we hamper that, we see these very things. Uh, what have you, what is your experience uh, here in DC that you mentioned it about the revolving door, the lack of, uh, of consequences for the actions of, uh, of, 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 you know, criminals that are taking advantage and preying on, on the very people that uh, politicians say that they're protecting from the police. Yeah, Pat, it's, it's very frustrating. So, um, it, you know, we're, we're short hundreds of officers like other major cities, and that really puts a, a big onus on the remaining officers that are out here. There's significantly more work to do with more calls for service, with more crime and less officers to do that. Uh, there's a lot of burnout that goes into that. But nonetheless, our officers go out and they do their job every day, regardless of that. Uh, and they're, they're willing to work overtime. They're willing to stay late, come in early uh, in order to address these demands because they care about the community. Uh, and even though these legislative fixes that the the city council has put into place that really do prevent them from doing their job, we are still able to go out and apprehend the bad guy, whether that's you know through good police work or detectives typing warrants. Uh, but we're able to come up with probable cause, figure out who committed these crimes, and arrest them. And then that's where the problems begin: is we bring them down uh, to the prosecutors, who are U.S. attorneys here in the District of Columbia, which again makes it even more complicated. Uh, and the prosecutors are not taking these cases seriously. A lot of these cases are getting dismissed or they're getting uh, you know, pro prosecuted as significantly lesser crimes than they really should be. And even when the prosecutors are taking these cases seriously and charging people appropriately, if we get a conviction, the judges are just not convicting people or not sentencing people in, in a way that's consistent with the crime. I'll give, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, we had a suspect that committed a homicide, really an execution in broad daylight on the street. He walked up to another man put a gun to his head, pulled the trigger and killed him right there on the street in broad daylight. Uh, our detectives figured out who was responsible. They went out, they typed a warrant, they got him arrested. They brought him into court. He was charged with that murder. And ultimately after he was convicted, he received a sentence of eight years. And we had another case that just came in today that's similar. A suspect chased a victim down an alley with a knife, caught up with him, stabbed him multiple times, killed him. Uh, he was arrested that very same day by our hardworking officers and ultimately, he's convicted in the court system, and he receives a penalty of seven and a half years, time served. And, and this is, if, if people are wondering, you know, why are there so many crimes in D.C.? Why am I hearing about carjackings and armed robberies and shootings? Well, if the penalty for murdering somebody in broad daylight is eight years or less, then there really is no penalty for any of these other crimes, including assaulting police officers. Yeah, and add to that, uh, you, you, the vast majority of, of violent crime is committed by a small handful of people. 
And when those small handful of people are allowed to just uh, to, to walk out through the back door on either the sweetheart deals or low bonds or, or whatever, what we're finding is these very people we take off the street are quickly going back and, and continuing to offend and create create more violence uh, within the communities. And, and you know, ironically, they're they're uh, the, the communities that are struggling the most are the black and brown communities that are that are, have these problems already. The ones that that very you know that many of these public officials think that they're actually helping, they're making their communities less and less safe. That's right. And and the point of the criminal justice system, and we know it's not perfect, but it's in my argument is is the the best system that that's been invented uh, as to date. Um, but the point of the criminal justice system is to penalize people when they've broken the law. And there should be significant penalties when people break the law for these type of crimes that we're talking about here. And they're just not doing that. And so the, the people that are willing to take advantage of other citizens and, and really go out and terrorize communities, they, they know that there's no penalties out there for behaving this way. And so they do it repeatedly over and over and over again. And all they have to do is go in front of the judge and, and you know, cl claim that they're sorry and, and pretend they're remorseful. And the judges will let them right out the back door. Uh, only for them to arm themselves and, and go out and continue terrorizing the community. And and I think, you know, going back to your last question, I think this is why officers are so frustrated is because they want to keep these neighborhoods safe. They want to keep these communities safe. That's what the citizens are asking for. That's what they're looking for us to do. We're doing everything we can in our power to do that. And the system is just broken. There's no way to actually hold these people accountable. Yeah, Greg, your, uh, your staffing is probably at an all-time low uh, ever, uh, probably in recorded history. Uh, with your agency, uh, a recent uh, poll by NBC uh, shows that 75% of Americans surveyed uh, agree that they should increase funding in law enforcement, while only 11% said that uh, that it would impact their ability to, or, or whether or not they would support a public official. Yet we still find a lot of cities that are, are struggling, uh, probably on two fronts. One, uh, maybe they're not quite as committed to, to, to filling the staffing levels that, to the level they need to, but at the same time, the harm that has been done for the last two years of demonizing law enforcement and, and instability created to the law enforcement profession has really caused us uh, a challenge in the law enforcement that we're losing people are retiring and they're leaving this profession at a at a rate they've higher than they ever have done before and our best and brightest are just not stepping forward for this job what is that doing for morale here in uh in, in metropolitan police yeah well i think what you just enumerated there is just one of the many problems that your average police officer is dealing with in, in addition to their inability to go out and do their job with no support from elected officials <clears throat> you know li little little support from uh, the media, certainly. Uh, and then the community seems to support them, but not as broadly as you'd expect, or at least as loudly as you'd expect. But w one of the real problems we have is when the, the personnel numbers drop, that workload uh, increases exponentially on each individual officer that remains. And so, you know, we're, we're here, I think we have about 34, 3,500 police officers. We're supposed to be at 4,000. So we're about 500 police officers short of where we're supposed to be. And so when these officers are going out every day, they're doing everything they can to respond to the demand. Uh, it really has a negative impact on morale because they just feel like no matter how much they go out there, they can't get their job done. No matter how much they work, no matter how many hours they put in, uh, there's always a, a more of a demand that's out there. And, and so it, you, you get a little bit of this degradation in the quality of service is that there's not enough cops to respond to the demand. And therefore that, uh, that service that we're so proud of providing tends to degrade. And it's uh, you know, it's, it's a compounding effect. It's exponential. 
and it seems to increase over time. And, and, you know, this is something that we broadcasted loudly from the very beginning when a lot of these uh, proposals were advanced is, hey, you, there are two things are going to happen here. You're going to have an exponential increase in crime and a mass exodus of police officers if you, if you advance these uh, provisions here. We got to do something about it. And everybody you know, uh, folded their arms and rolled their eyes. Oh, here comes the police union again, grumbling about these police reforms. But here we are two years later talking about those two very things coming to fruition. And, and now the question is, how quickly can we get them to roll these things back so we can undo some of the damage? Let me let me throw, an, uh, throw a, a third challenge. Uh, that third challenge is this. We have law enforcement officers who stayed on this job and even in this climate are, are making a difference in the communities they serve. They're out there every single day uh, providing public safety. At the same time, they're not able to take off of work. Uh, they're, they're having to work extra hours because of shortage. Uh, all of these things, we, you know, law enforcement officers are ordinary people that are called upon to do some pretty extraordinary things. But that doesn't mean it doesn't take its toll on them as well. Um, talk a little bit about the, just the officer wellness, the, the, the state of mind of, of, of the officers with, in, in, you know, MPD and, and what public officials are doing and how that affects morale. Yeah, I think this is a great question that probably doesn't get brought up enough, but we, we've seen over the past two years, uh, we're very proud of our employee assistance program here in, in the District of Columbia, and, and we have some really great people that, that run that service, and we have support from the management of the police department, and we, we have a lot of support uh, from the union, the union membership about this. Uh, but they have seen their numbers uh, and their demand for services increase, uh, you know, tenfold. Officers are asking for their assistance and and they just can't, they don't have enough hours in the day to get the officers that are requesting to be seen to go in there. Uh, and I, so I, there's something positive about that that shows that some of the stigma is, we're, uh, about seeking this kind of um, assistance is, is has gone away a little bit. But at the same time, it's concerning that we have s such a large spike in demand on, on, on such an important issue. And I think what it says is that these issues, as you mentioned, are taking a toll, not just on the number of hours that everybody has to work on any given day or the ability to, to finish their job, uh, but they're really taking a toll mentally. And, and this is something that, that I think more people should be concerned about. Well, even uh, the, the weight of the world will make even the strongest of knees buckle. And, and when someone's injured, you know, when something's broken in the service of others, I think we have a, a moral and a fiduciary responsibility to fix that which is broken. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the politicians and their actions they're taking and how that affects the working officer on the street. Yeah. So uh, here in D.C., you know, back in June of 2020, when we really started this debate, really started to heat up um, and, and we were really seeing unrest on a massive level, one that had never been seen before. Uh, our city council came out with sweeping provisions on what they called police and, and criminal justice reforms. We went out there and we told them, as I mentioned before, that um, th these were going to have very negative impacts on, on crime, very negative impacts on staffing, negative impacts on attrition and hiring, uh, and nobody wanted to listen to us. And so for the past two years, we have met with all of the council, city council members. We've met with their staffs. We've been on phone calls with them, on Zoom calls. We've met them in person. We've testified in nearly every city council hearing, even tangentially related, related to policing. Uh, we've provided written and oral testimony. We've cited the empirical data. Uh, and and one of the important issues that I've tried to point everyone to is look at what's happening in every other city and, and what do they have in common? And it's that their city councils have advanced almost similar identical reforms. And so we've been working with them, trying to get them to find ways uh, to scale some of this stuff back and make it more 
tailored specifically to what they're trying to do. Um, as I've said from the beginning, we're not afraid of reforms. We're not afraid of accountabilities. Our men and women go out and do their job every day, a properly, appropriately, constitutionally, responsibly. Uh, we're not afraid of people uh, peeling back the curtain and seeing what we're doing. But that's not what these proposals do. These proposals prevent them from doing their job and expose them to all kinds of liabilities that they normally wouldn't be exposed to. Uh, and so we've tried to work with them. And ultimately, we've gotten to a point recently where it seems like they've slammed the door in our face and we've seen uh, zero uh, concessions or compromise or any willingness whatsoever to, to retool any of these bills, even in the smallest, um, most minute of ways. And so the, one of the main questions that we get from citizens when we're out there on the street is what's going on with crime? And why, why is this happening so quickly and so fast? And, and why, is there, uh, why aren't there enough police out here? These are the kind of questions we get. And um, the answer is that the city council has changed the way that we're able to do policing in the city. And so we recently uh, embarked on an ad campaign uh, to try to educate the citizens on exactly what we think the problem is. And there's two council members uh, specifically who've gone out and try and advance bills that are completely detrimental to law enforcement and public safety. And while we've been trying to negotiate with them behind closed doors in a way to fix these bills, they just don't, they don't want to hear it. And so we think it's time to let the citizens know exactly what's going on. So you've been calling attention uh, specifically on this issue and have put together press releases and also a video as well. Let's, let's, let's watch that video. Who's to blame for this crime wave? D.C. Council members Charles Allen and Phil Mendelson. Their laws let criminals run free and prevent police from keeping us safe. They even cut police funding. Hundreds of good cops have left the D.C. Police Department. Phil Mendelson and Charles Allen didn't listen to public safety experts. They read tweets and chased headlines. Now, murder, carjackings, and violent crimes are the worst in 20 years. Tell Phil Mendelson and Charles Allen enough is enough. Innocent people are dying. You know, it's a, a pretty, a pretty forward step uh, to to the, be this this uh, I guess this open talking mm -hmm. about this this issue in a, in a public way, and, and so I, I can only sense the frustration of, of what brought it to this point. Now, talk a little bit about what brought you to this point and what uh, what you hope that the public will take away from this. Yeah, well, you know, many of the council members here in the District of Columbia have expressed a desire to try to to narrow and tailor some of these bills so that they're not so focused on. Um, just broadly uh, preventing police officers from doing their job, but really more specifically tailored to, to just the reform aspect and the accountability aspect. And that's all we've ever asked. But there's two council members who are really, really standing in the way of all that. And one is the chairman of the council, Phil Mendelson. The other is the chair of the Judiciary Committee, Charles Allen. And they've both told us unequivocally that there will be absolutely zero changes to any of these bills that have been out there. And, and these are the ones that are most detrimental to our ability to do our job. And so after two years of trying to work with these council members and their staffs uh, in being polite, being diplomatic, being professional, uh, trying to pro provide them with uh, all of the empirical data that, that could show them that these bills are wrongheaded and misguided uh, and only to have the door slammed in our face, uh, I think it's time that we actually have to alert the citizens to why this problem exists. And so we've uh, actually put these ads together uh, in order to educate the citizens about uh, what we think are the men and women in the Metropolitan Police Department, what we think the problem is. So look, look across this country. 
Uh, and you, you commented earlier about it's, you know, the, the place is the one commonality that exists in, in cities where they're seeing rises in crime. And some, some places as much as 200% has to do with the reform measures that they're taking and taking away the ability of law enforcement to be able to do their job. And as a result, what we're seeing is people who normally would have been taken off the streets because they are violent criminals are allowed to continue to reoffend and reoffend and reoffend. Let, let's just look here in, in, in DC, you got an 18% increase in homicides. You know, when we talk about percentages, we talk about numbers, numbers are impersonal. You know, we it's, it's just a number to us, but let's, let's look at reality. The reality is, is every one of these represents a family that's forever changed. Uh, and these failed experiments that we're seeing across this country are causing people their lives. Why, why would they be so much, um, such a wall placed in, in, in recognizing that law enforcement officers are the ones that do the job every day. We have something to offer to this discussion in order to be able to provide the best possibly possible, you know, outcome in the communities we serve, but yet we're being froze out in, in city after city after city and DC is, is no different than that. We're talking about real people being affected by here, you know, by this, uh, and an unwillingness to, to, to look at and include everyone. You know, if you look at, uh, you know, we talk about those communities across this country and I, I want you to answer that, but I, I want to make a point. Um, you look across this country and we see those communities that are struggling the ones that have the high right rise in crime, uh, and they have that commonality, but we also can look across this country and see cities that are similar size who have not undertaken a lot of these uh, really radical approaches to law enforcement. And really, when you talk about law enforcement, you talk about the quality of a community, it's, there's a lot of spokes to that wheel. And not all of it has to do with law enforcement. It has to do with poverty. It has to do with education systems. It has to do with a number of things. Uh, yet, it seems everything gets placed on, on law enforcement. You look at those communities where everyone is working together for the common good of their communities, we're not seeing those increases in crime and they're similar size cities cities um compare that in, in what you're seeing here in dc yeah you're absolutely right and I, I think you brought up the most important part of this discussion which is the voice of the victims uh this is really what all law enforcement and public safety decisions should be made around is what's going on with these victims and and that this is the one category of people that has lost their voice uh and and it seems to me that the only people that are coming out and speaking on their behalf are law enforcement entities like yourself and, and other FOPs around the country and other uh, police advocacy groups. Um, and, and that's that's alarming because what generally politicians and the media are doing is ignoring police representatives because, oh, well, you're the bad guys. We can't, you know, we can't take your word for it. But the problem is, is that in all of that, uh, victims at large have been silenced. And, and as you mentioned, when, when you asked the question, well, you know, everybody talks about these numbers of homicides are up, shootings are up, carjackings are up behind every one of those statistics is a person who's been traumatized for their life or a family who's lost a loved one. And, and we're the ones that respond to those scenes and, and try to put closure to that, whether that's apprehending somebody who's responsible, returning somebody's property or, or restoring somebody back to health, whatever those things are. Um, police respond to those things and, and we care about these communities and we care about victims and that's why we do what we do every day. And, and I think you know, what gets lost in this discussion and what gets lost in these statistics is the idea that there's, um, you know, there's victims out there and there's actual people, uh, who are behind each one of these statistics who've, who've been traumatized. Um, but you know, your second point is very well taken, which is, and this is something that we've tried to bring up to a number of, of council members here in the city is 
you can look at all of the cities around the country and the ones that are experiencing similar spikes in crime and, and uh, reductions in the size of their police force are ones that advance the same type of provisions. The ones that haven't, the ones that have stood fast and said, no, we're, we're not going to get involved in this, you know, quote unquote, police reform discussion. They're not seeing those kind of crimes, the, the crime statistics or, or losses in, in their officers. And so that's the empirical data that I think everyone should look to, to determine w- what is it that's causing this, right? Everybody has all kinds of, of um, specula- speculation and uh, you know, theories about why these things happen. And, and the answer, I think, is clear as day, is if you're going to go out and tell your police officers you don't want them doing their jobs, and you're going to expose them to all this liability and vitriol and rhetoric, and you're going to inflame these communities against the police officers when they come to try to help, you're going to experience an increase in crime. Uh, especially if you're reducing the size and scope and budgets of your police departments, uh, you're absolutely going to experience a rise in crime. Uh, and until that message is sort of more broadly received, um, I, I think you know, we're going to have a problem for the, for the near future. So what are you hearing from, from the communities, uh, you know, from business leaders, from civic leaders about their concern about the rise in crime with their community? Does, it, does that even add into the, any of these equations of, of these, this, this reform that we're talking about that somehow is going to improve the quality of life in communities that we, we see the absolute opposite happening? Yeah, I think it does. And, you know, you brought up some of the polling earlier about, uh, you know, people supporting the police and looking for more police. And and what we've seen, not only here in this city, but in other cities and nationwide, when you poll things like, do you support defund the police or do you support provisions that reduce the size and scope of your police department? Uh, the, su- the support numbers for those uh, provisions are in the single digits. You know, you see seven, eight percent people that support defund. And when you ask the opposite question, do you want more police in your neighborhood? The, the numbers are overwhelming, 60, 70, sometimes 80% of people who respond to these surveys want more police in their neighborhood. And I think the disconnect is related to the media here in, the, in this country who has been advocating uh, on the side of this sort of police reform movement. And so it doesn't feel like that majority that supports the police is really out there. Uh, and I think what we're starting to see now is kind of the pendulum swinging back the other way. And I, I think there now sounds like there's almost a cacophony, a, a, a sort of group of voices that's coming out to say they do support the police and they do support funding the police. And, and where I think you can see that is a lot of candidates who are running in various races, both local and federal elections, the ones that are saying that they want to support the police and they want to fund the police and they want to get more police in these neighborhoods and, and they have a public safety law enforcement message, those are the ones that are leading in the polls or are even winning elections for those that have had them. And the ones that are doing the opposite are, are falling well behind. So I, I'm hoping that um, we're on the cusp of, of moving in the other direction where we start to move back to a law uh, mentality here in this country. Well, I hope you're right. And I certainly you, you could see it happening on a, a number of fronts. Uh, even in Congress, uh, you look at the, at the president's, uh, budget, uh, fiscal budget, uh, p- puts a lot of funding for law enforcement, in fact, greater than we've ever had before. So the message is there that, 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 that we, we've run off in a different direction, I think as a nation. Um, I, I think if there's anything, uh, the public's quest for having accountability, uh, needs to be offset a call at the cost of public safety as well. And and what we're seeing is uh, is 
an elimination of that public safety safety uh, consideration in it. Uh, I, I'm less concerned to how we got to this point. I think history will record that. What I am interested in is how do we where do we go from here? You know, how do we improve these these the harm that has been for the last two years? How do we get the best and brightest to to come into this profession? The next wave of law enforcement officers to to be that change to to help shape law enforcement into to the you know, at this new direction of, uh, of more accountability. I, I think we're all, we all agree that, as you said, you know, we're all about accountability. That's, that's what our profession's for. It's our job is when we don't get it right. Our, our job is to, to analyze it and review it and, and take steps to make sure that, uh, that we improve as we go along. So, so just uh, some final thoughts, uh, on you, what, what, in the district of Columbia, what needs to happen here? in order for everybody to start working together and recognize the, the damage that is being done by the rise in crime, the causation of that rise in crime, and what type of partnership with the community and public officials and law enforcement is it going to take for us to recognize that, uh, that we all own a piece of this and the only way we're ever going to get past it is if we all work together? Uh, well, I, I think what needs to happen here is um, – it's a bit of a long game. And what I will tell you is that the men and women of the police department, um, you know, and their, and their, their police advocates here in the city are doing everything they can to try to move the ball uh, down the field in, in order to get these problems solved. I think what they're running up against uh, is typically the media is, is slow to pick up on uh, this idea that support for police and support for police officers is the answer. Uh, but we really need support from our elected officials we need support from uh, the, the leaders of these agencies. They need to, and and some of them have been out there and advocating for police well, but I think this net, it needs to be a broader, louder um, message about how we support our police. And we need the leaders of the communities to come out and do the same. And, and we're trying to do everything we can to make them comfortable doing that. But this isn't a police only solution. And I think you mentioned that in your question, which is how do we get all these people to work together? And I think we need people to understand that policing will only improve when we invest in it. And I'm not just talking about dollars and cents from a budget's perspective, but when we support the people who are out there in the police department, when we support the police department in general, we're going to hire better people and we're going to have better people come on the department who go out and perform better and, and serve the citizens and serve the public better. And when we do that, uh, that's when the citizens will start to regain some trust in, 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 um, our profession, especially here in the District of Columbia. And unfortunately, I think there's a lot of damage that's been done. I know that you know, recruiting is hurting and our the attrition numbers are, are terrible in terms of people leaving the department. Um, but hopefully we can get back to a place where people trust and support the men and women of the Metropolitan Police Department and that we actually can encourage best and brightest, as you stated, to come in here and, and be police officers here in the nation's capital. And I think the better we have um, the better police we have, the better we can do. And, and one thing I'll say is um, the area in which I agree with a lot of these police reformers or police activists is that they want better policing, is that they want to see better police officers. And I couldn't agree with them more. I think we should have the best of the best. And, and policing is a government agency. These are This is a government job and it's never going to run perfectly. It's always going to have its problems. We should always be looking to improve it. We should always be looking to find ways to make it better. We should always be on the cutting edge of law enforcement and doing things in the most responsible constitutional way. And the only way you can do that is if you're constantly self-assessing uh, exactly how you operate. But in order to, to sort of move in that direction of having better police, 
what they're trying to do is, is tear the industry down. And I don't think that you're going to get there. I think all you're going to do is make the industry worse. I think the way that we improve things is to get better police officers, better educated police officers, police officers with better reasoning skills, police officers who are better, better able to think outside the box or, or uh, show up on a scene and they're not necessarily reaching for the tools on their belt to solve every problem. Uh, I think we can get there. I think we can all get there. And I think the way that we do that is by encouraging uh, the best people we have in society to, to work in this industry uh, and not try to drive people away from it. And, and once we realize that making the police department better is going to improve policing, uh, I, I think we really can do something to make, make us um, you know, really, really a standout agency. And we also need to recognize that this, a lot of the problems that, that, that ail, ails communities uh, across this country are not all law enforcement. Uh, They're all parts, uh, spokes in a wheel. And they all, they all have a, a significant part of it. And the only way we're ever going to move forward is if we have that open dialogue on how we address these issues in a holistic approach. So, Greg, if somebody wants to know more about how, uh, let's just say uh, people within a community or even business leaders here in D.C. want to become, have more dialogue about how to improve uh, policing in, in the District of Columbia, uh, how, can they, how can they get in touch with you? Well, they can find us at dcpoliceunion.com. Uh, they can go to our Facebook page, DC Police Union, or our Twitter page, which is at DC Police Union, and that has links to uh, all of our contact information. I encourage people to go there. Uh, also, our YouTube page has some of the recent ads that we were discussing earlier. Well, great, and, and, and Greg, thank you. It's it's a it's a difficult time to be in law enforcement. It's also a difficult time to be in leader leadership and in, in, in a police union. Uh, just the demonization that's happened across this country, the toll it's taken on everybody. Thank you for you and your board and uh, the work that you're doing uh, representing the men and women in the Metropolitan Police Department. You're doing a great job. Uh, and to our listeners, thank you for uh, for tuning in uh, to the Blue View. This is where we talk about those issues that are important to the men and women who suit up and show up to work every day all across this country. Uh, protecting those they pledge to serve. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of The Blue View, hosted by Patrick Yost, National President of the Fraternal Order of Police. To catch our next episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.